my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm off my game today. No, you're not. That's true. People are going to have to start making better content. I think we're going to be talking about this for a long time. When you program for everyone, you program for no one. I think it's that we're a purpose-driven platform. Like, we're trying to get to substance. How okay. was that? Are you happy with that? Yeah. This is marketing therapy right now. It, it really is. <laughs> yeah. What's up? I'm Laura Carrenti. And I'm Alexa Kristen. Welcome back, Adlandia. Today on the show, we have Sarah Fisher, one of our favorites from Axios Media Newsletter. Sarah is going to walk us through what she sees for 2022 and what you should be looking out for as a marketer. 
Atlandia, we are back on the mic with media reporter Sarah Fisher is in the building. Woohoo! Sarah, welcome back to Atlandia. We missed you. How are you? Hi, I've missed you so much. And I'm so grateful to be back. This is my favorite podcast. Oh my gosh. That's saying a lot. We appreciate that. So Sarah, five years in, I think you were one of our first guests on Atlandia dating back to 2017. Can you believe it's been that long? Before we hear you jam on everything happening in the industry, it'd be great to get your perspective creating within it. Wow. I can't believe it's been five years since that first podcast with you guys. It's wild. Well, I'd say before I joined Axios, I had uh, you know jobs in a bunch of different companies and both on the business and edit sides. And when I was at CNN in 2013, I wrote a newsletter, a daily newsletter for politics. And so when I think about the evolution of creators and journalists in the news, especially, I think about that experience almost 10 years ago compared to today. And what it looked like was star journalists didn't have newsletters. They didn't have their own and operated channels to communicate with their audience. That was rare. And if they did have newsletters, they weren't personality driven. You weren't, you know, getting my insights as an analyst. I was just, you know, delivering information to you via email from CNN servers and from CNN's brand, but you weren't tuning in because of me. And to that end, you didn't have Substack and all these other outlets for journalists to create their own brands. Fast forward almost 10 years later, it's the complete opposite. Now you're seeing news companies intentionally launching newsletters and O&O products like podcasts, etc., with journalists and their brands at the forefront. And that pivot has empowered journalists, one, to make more money. You know, you are a much more valuable commodity as a brand than you ever were. But two, it's empowered journalists to really dive in to niches. And that's powerful and important because we're human beings. You can't be an expert in everything. But if you can be an expert in something, you are able to command a really strong audience. It's part of the reason why I love Adlandia, because you've become the authority in advertising and marketing. And that focus makes you valuable to me professionally. And in many cases, personally, I'm getting to listen to voices of people who I'd want to mentor me. So that's been the biggest shift as a creator. And it's a very positive one, at least the way I see it. You know, we have more opportunity. Like I said, there's more opportunity to make money. And there's more opportunity to become an expert in something. Have the tools become so easy and so prevalent that you can see yourself expanding Sarah Fisher, right? The brand, the journalist, the point of view um, into lots of different areas in the future. Well, I have no plans to leave Axios. So it, for now, my brand extension is helping to grow the media coverage for my company. And that's important because once we start launching subscription products in particular, I am going to play a large role in helping to drive signups for them. And so it's like I'm expanding my brand, doing TV hits, doing podcasts like this, doing events, getting out there in front of people in order to expand the Axios brand. That's my goal for the short, mid, and potentially long term. I plan to be here for a while. In the very, very, very long term, if I ever wanted to do something else, to your point, there's a million opportunities that didn't exist before. You know, you can easily start your own newsletter. You can easily start your own podcast. You can easily start your own cable network these days. It's crazy to see all these little networks pop yeah. up. It's not in my short-term plans at all because I love where I'm at. But I do feel like it's possible. And I will say 10 years ago, it didn't feel possible. 
You got a job at a big media company or local news company, and that was it. There was no opportunity to start your own thing unless you were a really serious entrepreneur with big backing. And today, there's a lot more, you know, opportunity to be entrepreneurial. Are you also looking at and reading what I would call more amateur, you know, editorial and journalists more because of the Substacks? We are truly at the giant rise of the blogger. Yes. For very specific things, I do go to very niche content creators because I know they're focusing on it better than anyone, even if they're not at a massive media company. So, for example, Jacob Donnelly has his media operator newsletter that also comes out on Tuesdays, and he works for Morning Brew. He's not trying to be a media journalist. He's just an executive in the industry who puts out this newsletter, and I find it very smart and has great insights, and so I read it. You know, another great example is Judd Lagoon. He is a Substack reporter. He focuses on the intersection of influence and power, and he does it so, you know, well, and at such a niche that he's the authority in that, that I'm reading. So, you know, there are definitely independent voices that I'm paying attention to much more now than I ever did. What's the trade-off, Sarah, in going the independent route versus having the backing and infrastructure of a media platform like Axios? I mean, the biggest thing is legal protections, for me at least. I think having a big news institution with lawyers is massively important because there's so many legal liabilities when you're covering things, whether they're lawsuits or they're allegations, etc. And then the other thing is having the expertise of colleagues and other issue areas to tap into. So, for example, I put a story up on the website about the... Um, Chicago Sun-Times being acquired by Chicago's public media nonprofit. I worked with our Axios local reporter in Chicago on the ground who has worked at both of those outlets to put that out there. That is a very unique opportunity to dive into that expertise. Another example is we've been trying to study a lot of the psychology around misinformation, trying to understand how it's become a bigger media problem. I'll team with our science editor to do those stories. That's a lot harder to do when you're just looking independently. How do you keep your competitive edge? And this may be getting into a bit of the Sarah Fisher secret sauce. But for those who are out there thinking about going at it, be it side hustle, main hustle, whatever the case is, and starting to create, there's so much content to consume. What's the edge? I think it's really important to create shortcuts that work for you. You For me, it doesn't make sense to go to a coffee shop and read 10 print papers. For other people, I know Nora O'Donnell does this. She reads her physical print paper with a highlighter and highlights it out. I'm somebody who subscribes a lot to crowdsource Wall Street blogs like Motley Fool and Seeking Alpha because the alerts are really quick, which is helpful for me, and I can get transcripts of earnings calls. That's a shortcut for me. I subscribe to a lot of RSS feeds so I can kind of customize my podcast listening. I try really hard to create lists on Twitter so I can browse through specific expertise at a specific moment. So, for example, when the Activision and Microsoft news came out, you know, I'll go to a Twitter list of gaming experts. So I've developed shortcuts that help me cut through the noise quick that work for me. Those shortcuts aren't going to be the same for everyone, but I think in order to be at the top of your game, everyone's got to figure out their own shortcuts. Sarah, you touched on a few things that we want to go a little deeper with you on one of which is Axios's big bet. And what I loved, by the way, when Jim Vandehei 
wrote the Axios community saying, we're getting into local and we're really investing in this. It was seemingly so honest about we're going to fumble, we're going to have mistakes. But you already gave a major use case around like the Chicago Sun of how important it is to have local journalists and people who are in a community. And right now, I think what's really interesting is that we've got this kind of uh, this kind of polar opposites happening where local journalism, local media, local community is becoming, dare I say, even more localized. And we've got major changes on the kind of global scene in media. India is blowing up with opportunities around media and entertainment. China, you've reported on, and I think a, a few other people have talked about that China's building their own entertainment and their, uh, empire and Hollywood empire. What's happening? What do you see in this? Why are those two kind of poles so important? And are they equally as impactful? Absolutely. They're both so important. For us, local was always a priority since day one. We have been following the you know, demise of local newspapers due to economic constraints in the very beginning. And it's something that we care about as part of our mission. And to your point, Alexa, it does strengthen our national journalism because we can pair with people on the ground for big stories. One of the ones that really stood out to me was our uh, report. One of our reporters from Northwest Arkansas wrote a report about big tech talent coming into that area of the country and recruiting and setting up offices there. Like who would have known? Yeah, I mean, who would have known? You know, you have Walmart there, but there's not otherwise a big tech talent hub there. And so our national tech reporter saw that and included it in her newsletter and expanded on it for our national audience to say, pay attention to this story of Silicon Prairie, if you will, moving to the center of the country. And so we find that it's going to help our national reporters report better. And we also find that it helps to serve local communities with stronger journalism if they have expertise from, you know, not just the local communities, but the national communities they can tap into as well are experts. On the global side, what is so exciting to me is there are people who are tackling it from a hyper-local but global level. So not just saying, okay, I'm going to cover Asia. They're saying, okay, I'm going to set up micro bureaus in Seoul and Taiwan, and I'm going to figure out how I can cover these massive places globally in a more localized way. And that, to me, is really powerful and important because... You know, we've had a few global newsrooms. I think about the wires, like AP and Reuters, but we haven't had so many news companies to really think about it like that. I think Ben Smith and Justin Smith announcing that they were going to create this uh, global newsroom is exciting. If they're going to go about it from that direction, which it seems that they will. And increasingly, when I talk to some of the big newspapers here, like the New York Times and Washington Post, this is becoming a bigger priority for them too, getting on the ground globally. Uh, you've seen... Netflix and Spotify and all these big tech sort of streaming services start to think this way with entertainment. But now we're starting to see it happen for news and it's really exciting. I actually think there's also an opportunity for brand. One of my clients has explored this idea of setting up brand bureaus globally, locally rooted in perspective. And then obviously the aggregate then of that content making up the broader global story. And so it's interesting when brands start to think about perspective from the ground and potentially participating in a similar model. Totally. And I think about this with Superman a lot. Superman last year changed its logo or its slogan rather um, from truth, justice in the American way 
to truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. And the reason they did that is because streaming and entertainment and content is increasingly being delivered via tech platforms and consumed in global markets. And so because of that, you don't want to have this overly sort of Americanized approach that you're exporting. You want to have hyper-local content that can relate to people culturally, even with their own language on the ground, because it's better business, quite frankly. And so I definitely agree with you, Laura. I think brands are starting to make this adjustment as well, and it's exciting. It is difficult. Well, it requires mass infrastructure, right? Yes. Infrastructure, investment. And I think also like there has to be a bit of like a logistics or or founder mindset around this because what's been done before hasn't worked and there needs to be a bit of a rewrite. We went to big national and global outlets for news for a long time. And as the um, local communities kind of almost got stripped away of a real voice point of view and that kind of community cohesion that comes in with critical, right, information and journalism about what's happening on the ground in your town where you live. And so we went from having lots of local journalists and lots of local newspapers and lots of all, you know, a, a lot of volume of people to the complete polar opposite. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska right? Omaha World Herald was where it was at, not only producing like some great journalists, but it was the true beat of the city. And so losing, you know, so many towns, so many cities in middle America, especially, and like as Sarah said, on the prairie, what Silicon Prairie, I love that, like have lost um, the kind of critical information feed um, that is really speaking to what's happening. So what now we're going back to, right, the focus on local, but I think with better tools and maybe a different viewpoint of how local really starts to feed into a bigger national um, point of view and information pipeline. It's just like, it just makes sense. It's a total different game when you start thinking about national brands trying to move the needle in a specific region or market coming in and advertising for a season or a campaign and instead using probably the same amount of money to support local journalism from a longevity or equity building standpoint. Are you seeing anything in that capacity, Sarah? Absolutely. It's a huge one. So let me give you three examples. We had Vox Media create something called Concert Local, which is sort of a local programmatic advertising marketplace. They teamed up with Google to do it, in which they could have national brands put out distinct messaging to local news companies. And the reason they wanted to do that is because when technology has made us more globalized, and so you've seen mom and pop shops, small retailers get choked out by some of these really big brands like you know Amazon and Walmart. But the challenge that Amazon and Walmart face is that they don't have the direct relationships with the communities. And they started to realize that they're going to struggle competitively against the local retailers that are there because they have a marketing problem. They have an outreach problem. They have a community problem. And probably perceptual also, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. I mean, some of them are large employers in some of these places, but a lot of times they're not. And, you know, Amazon is just perceived as sort of the big boogeyman 
And so they have found that they want to message locally, but there's not a great way to do it. I mean, Amazon is not going to put direct sellers on the ground in every single city in America. So these programmatic marketplaces, like what Vox created, became very compelling. And then you had Washington Post created, Jared Dicker, who's a good friend and on the show a lot, created this with Zeus, where they were going to bring in a lot of local papers, starting with the McClatchy Change and the Seattle Times, and they were going to add them to a marketplace so national advertisers could reach them. Then McClatchy and Gannett teamed up, and they said, we're going to create the same thing because the demand was there. And Axios, that's the way we're thinking about it, too. You know, we definitely want to have local on-the-ground relationships with communities and with advertisers. But we also see an opportunity to bring some of our national brand partners to the local level. And you're seeing them take advantage of it. Facebook is running ads in our local newsletters. So I think this is a massive, massive trend. It's only going to get bigger. And the thing I'm keen to see is how do the big brands think about this from a messaging perspective? Okay, so we've solved the tech problem, right? That's what I was going to ask. Is that enough? They will have to be smart about how they marry the medium and the message. So we are getting there with the medium. We know how to deliver this. We're creating smart technology solutions to get there. The message is a lot more nuanced. You're going to have to invest in communities, learn about their needs in order to blanket them. So right now, when you look at national ads at the local level, oftentimes they do seem a little bit impersonal. What it's going to have to start looking like is, hey, you know, we know that you had a massive snowstorm two days ago and that communities are looking for water and supplies. Buy one, get one, give one, and help out your local community. Yes. But they gotta invest in learning the community problems before they can message like that. And so that's gonna just take a few years. Exactly. Yes. Which is why having those connections on the ground really matters. L A S I K LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. 
like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Sarah, we're talking about 2022. You're hot on local. You're hot on, at the same time, global expansion. What else are you focused on in 2022? And what would you tell our listeners? Here are the things that I'm going to be looking at or here are the things that I'm putting bets on. Yeah, so we saw a lot of consolidation in 2021. Discovery announcing that it would do a joint venture with AT&T that's just spinning out Warner Media to create a huge conglomerate there. Amazon acquiring MGM and uh, in the private level, you know, Vox and Group 9 coming together. I think you're going to see more consolidation in 2022. And I think in entertainment especially, there's so much need for programming for streaming that you're just going to see more production houses get gobbled up. In the digital media space, which is interesting, one of the areas where we saw a lot of deal volume was digital audio, which was super important because I think the audio space is ripe for innovation. And then ad tech and martech, you know, as the ad market grew, there were new cottage industries going around it, like CTV or even just ad verification. You know, in the 80s or 70s and before that, when we just had to measure whether or not households viewed a television show, we didn't have companies designed to authenticate that the people were sitting in front of their TVs. We just made those assumptions. With digital, you can actually authenticate that. And so you have this whole cottage industry of authentication and verification. Think about integral ad science going public. Think about double verify going public. So that's a huge one. We have a cottage industry around marketing and commerce that's taking off. Um, you know, Taboola made an $800 million acquisition uh, to get into commerce last year. And so that whole idea of cottage industries around brand marketing and advertising taking off is so big. Last year was the biggest year on record for ad and MarTech IPOs. 
to give you a sense. So I think all this consolidation will continue into 2022. I think watch the entertainment, digital, audio, ad, and martech sectors specifically for continued consolidation. And the flip side of that is watch to see how regulators respond. The FTC and the DOJ announced that they're taking sort of calls for merger review guidelines to change because we're recognizing that, you know, antitrust and competition is a bigger issue in the 21st century. So that would be the flip side of all this consolidation is like, to what extent do we actually allow it to happen? Like the Microsoft Activision deal. Yes, $70 billion deal. I mean, Microsoft went through the ringer with antitrust in the 1990s. And so as a result, they spent the next two decades being very cautious and pandering to regulators, building up a big VC presence. And the result of that was that a lot of their competitors were able to grow bigger than them through acquisitions. Look at Google buying YouTube and Facebook buying Instagram. But what happened in the past few years is Microsoft saw that the tune had changed and had it turned. And people began to look at their competitors with a negative lens in terms of competition. And they quietly came in and scooped up a lot of stuff. You know, they bought Bethesda Games in a huge deal. They bought LinkedIn for $26 billion. And so the announcement that they're buying Activision Blizzard for almost $70 billion, this serves as a pivotal moment, actually, for deal-making forever. If regulators let this one go, it'll be a huge signal, both to Microsoft and big tech, that they're not as serious about clamping down on these types of mergers. But if they take a hard look at it, you, know, you can expect tech giants, but also other corporate giants to start to think differently about their organic versus inorganic and purchase growth strategies because they might not be able to buy their way to dominance forever. The more we consolidate, the more it seems fewer bigger players will continue to dominate the market. Is that the trend you're seeing? That is. And that's the concern that lawmakers have is, is that good for consumer choice? You know, if you have a few services that control the market, they can control pricing, they can control creativity. And so what you're starting to see is smaller companies come out and push back and say, look, we want to have a seat at the table because it's good for consumers. The one you know brand I'll call out for doing this well has been Roku. Roku has pushed back a lot on Google's dominance. And as a result, they're the number one smart TV platform. And think about the opportunity for brands. I mean, Roku has a really big edge in connected TV advertising. They, you know, bought part of Nielsen's connected TV ad business last year. That's a huge opportunity for brands to be able to get into the CTV game in a meaningful way. And it wouldn't have happened if a upstart brand like Roku didn't try to challenge the dominance of the existing incumbents. And so I think that's a trend that's just going to continue to happen across every industry. You know, in audio, you're going to have smaller upstart podcasting companies try to challenge Apple. And Spotify, I and mean, Spotify at one point was a start company, right? That's right. So it'll just continue that way. I want to go two seconds into audio. So I made this prediction in, I don't know, October to a group that I was advising that uh, this year we were going to see, in 2022, we were going to see an explosion of audio and audio innovation. Um, what are you seeing specifically there? Is it related to podcasts? Is it related to more audio search and home devices. Tell us what you're thinking. Broadly speaking, NPR and Edison, Edison being one of the premier research firms for audio, put out a study that they do every year. And they found that the share of ear, meaning the amount of listening time that's going to the spoken word, being podcasts, audiobooks, 
etc., has increased eight percentage points in the past eight years from, you know, taking away some of the dominance of music. Now, it doesn't mean that our music diets are shrinking. They're actually growing bigger. It just means that the piece of the pie that spoken word is taking is growing bigger. And as a result, it creates a whole new economy for audio that didn't exist before. You know, we had spoken word being primarily consumed on radio eight years ago. Now it's primarily consumed on digital, which means we can serve much more targeted advertising that we can measure, et cetera. And so part of that consolidation you're going to see that you mentioned, Alexa, in the next year is going to be consolidating the business side of audio to accommodate this new reality. And you're starting to see it, you know, Spotify acquiring Megaphone, et cetera, but it's going to continue to get even bigger. And right now the podcast advertising market specifically is still pretty small. You know, it's only about a billion dollars. It is like 70 billion. But once we're able to create more end-to-end audio platforms that you can create a message, place a message, distribute a message, measure, measure the impact of that message all in one place, similar to like what Facebook did for social media and what Google did for search, it's going to bring a lot more dollars into the audio advertising landscape. So I think Spotify is definitely taking the lead right now in building that end-to-end landscape, but you also have other competitors. iHeart is getting in there. SiriusXM is getting in there. And so once there's a few big players, the investment is going to definitely pour in. Malcolm Gladwell, for instance, a couple episodes back talking about his pivot into audiobooks and creating for the audio medium. You can't buy ads in books, but can you buy ads in audiobooks? It starts to create entirely new revenue streams for certainly the platforms, but also the creators. Totally. Quick take. What are your thoughts on social audio? Where is it going? I'm not talking about a specific brand. There are a lot of people getting into this space and have gotten into this space. What's next for social audio in this kind of prediction of of audio expansion and consolidation? There's two ways to think about social audio. One is live, and the other is asynchronous, which is you send someone a video, uh, an audio note. And I watched way too many TikToks. You wouldn't even believe, but one viral audio trend right now is asynchronous audio where people on their hinge profile can record a message and it can go viral and i think both are really interesting to watch we often are only talking about live but we should be thinking about asynchronous as well in the live space i think we saw during the lockdowns that people definitely were craving community and so that's why it it, exploded. But once lockdowns ease and people don't want to spend hours, you know, just kind of listening in on chats, they want to be in on person. I think the future of live audio is going to shift a little bit. And what it's going to be is it's going to be a manifestation of what's happening in real life a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So can you picture you're at a small meeting in your office and you don't want to have to go through this entire video. You don't have to set it up and make it formal. You just all join an audio chat. And you just start talking, but you can put 20 people in there. You can raise your hand and the functionality is really good. I think that kind of can become the future of audio or it can be with your friends. Like, hey, we need to figure out where we're going out tonight. Let's all just hop on a live. Like, let's just all hop on a clubhouse chat and just talk it through. Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be a bigger part of it. It's going to become less um, of a more passive uh, 
entertainment kind of pastime with like it was during the pandemic you listened in a bunch of rooms it's become going to become a much more active thing that you take part in as a function for your life and i actually think there's enormous opportunity as it shifts into that role yeah i agree i i kind of look at it as like a radio frequency right like you shift to a different radio frequency there's going to be a time for live specifically um and a time for asynchronous rather than maybe the kind of main platform. But I think the main platform and the functionality and features will get sucked into something that's, you know, that's a broader uh, set of communication tools. As you're talking, I'm just reminiscing about having my room line in the 90s and just calling you both three-way on three-way. Everything old is new again. It just happens to be in an app versus uh, picking up the room phone. Totally. Sarah, before we let you go, I'm going to say a word. Tell us the first thing that comes to your mind. Is that cool? Yeah. Let's see what happens. Metaverse. Facebook. Metaverse. Facebook. Oh, good. Web3. Jared Dicker. (laughs) Oh, God. He he paid you for that. He paid you for that. CMO. Data. Amazon. Hollywood. Interesting. NFT. Blockchain. Google. Antitrust. One fun thing. Travel. Yes. All right. Yes. And we have to play the game, Sarah. Bye, bye, bye. What is Sarah Fisher in 22 saying goodbye to? What are you buying? And what are you doing yourself that you're not already doing? In 2022, I am saying goodbye to a lot of the conferences I used to go to. It has become obvious in the past two years that I, and I think we all were, traveling uh, not in a smart way. Yeah. We were not being as strategic about our time. And now that we figured out healthier lifestyles and we're not running around so much, I think people are going to be much pickier about which ones they actually attend versus which ones they participate in virtually. Yep. I totally agree with that. I'm all in for that. What are you buying? You know, I think the idea of the metaverse and blockchain and NFTs and all that is real now. It didn't feel as real to me. I wasn't investing in crypto. I mean, I, I actually can't buy crypto or, or those, I can't buy individual stocks, but I wasn't thinking about it as a consumer in a really real way. Now I am. This is the year where I think most people are going to start to take this stuff seriously, you know, getting into having a digital wallet, trying to experiment with Bitcoin and digital currencies, et cetera. What do you think is going to flip the masses towards Web3 or NFT or having a wallet? Like, do you think that there's something that has to happen for, you know, my mom to start talking about NFTs and buying NFTs? Yeah, I think we just need better regulatory safety and security infrastructure. I think the reason people are bearish is because they talk to their financial planners about it. And they're like, don't put your money in there. It could get stolen, right? Like crypto.com halted trading the other day because money was getting taken out and they couldn't figure out why. I think once we have figured out better guardrails for this, it's going to become mainstream. Sarah, what are you doing yourself? BY? I'm going to be thinking a lot more about service in 2022. In the past five years, I've been thinking about Axios and my brand and what I'm doing for my career. And if anything has become obvious to me in the past few years, it's that I actually can grow my company's brand, mine, better if I'm thinking about the broader landscape of journalism and how I contribute to public service. And that's a huge mission of mine. I just um, started mentoring a young journalist this year who's in college. And I think 
uh, we're all going to be more enriched if we're thinking about giving back because God knows as a society, that's like the only way we're going to survive it. That's awesome. I love that. And I think you as a mentor, you've mentored us actually in, in a lot of ways, kind of informally, but you as a mentor, that is a lucky, lucky person. If you ever get a chance to see Sarah Fisher interview live, it is a masterclass for how to conduct an interview. And so when Alexa says you mentor us, I, I, I wholeheartedly say like, I've learned a lot from watching you in action. Be sure to follow her also. Sarah, your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is just Sarah Fisher, I think. That's it. I think it is Sarah, too. I'm laughing because <laughs> I, was, I swore, I thought what you were just going to say was, if you ever see Sarah Fisher on the conference circuit, she is like the best person at the bar. <laughs> you, you <wanna> <laughs> that's hey, true you too. said it you that's, said true it. Too. that's what i thought that's you were gonna too. say um but thank you guys so much the feeling is mutual i learned from you all the time i love this podcast and um yeah thank tell you. any of your listeners like feel free to reach out i'm just sarah at access.com with no eight take that invite for anyone who is listening you will be better for it sarah fisher thank you we can't wait to see you in person thanks sarah thanks guys so, Laura, I can't believe that we had Sarah Fisher on five years ago. It feels like yesterday. Amazing, right? We wish Sarah so much success. Axios Media Newsletter is truly, truly my every Tuesday read. If I read nothing else in the week in the business, that's the newsletter that I read. And if you don't read it already, you should be Adlandia. We'll be back in two weeks. Laura hit it with the list of all of our friends and family at iHeart who have been so good to us and helped us get back on air. Big thank you to Bob, Connell, Carter, Andy, Eric, Gail, Val, Michael, Jen. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We'll see you in two weeks. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.